is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand, welcome to the program. Brazil has just announced that it will suspend beef exports to China following a case of mad cow disease. Now what could this mean for Australia's cattle industry? You will find out soon. Also, the first electric ute has arrived in Australia. It is doing a regional tour to show farmers what it can do. So on the Country Hour today, we go for a test drive. So this is the first commercially available uh, electric ute in Australia. Um, you know, it wasn't all that long ago that people were saying that electric utes didn't exist anywhere in the world. Well, here it is right now. I'm touching it as we speak. Looks pretty real to me. That's it. It's no unicorn. It's right here. Yeah, strap in for today's Country Hour. A big show ahead. First up, let's talk about this beautiful rain. We are going to start the country hour today by heading straight to Catherine, where the river is up. There's been some big rain about. And our reporter, Max Rowley, is at the Catherine Bridge this afternoon. How's it all looking, Max? Oh, it's looking great, Matt. Look, the, the water is, the river is up. The banks are at least 100 metres wide. Here you can see the tops of some trees poking up. Um, above the flood water. It's hitting just 14 metres on the bridge level right now. And the, yeah, the river is pumping, the frogs are croaking, Matt. And that's coming after a lot of rain overnight and over the past few days, though not raining at the moment. Nice dry skies, a bit overcast still, but there is some sun creeping through the clouds. All right, so you're not getting drenched as you speak to us this afternoon. No, thankfully, thankfully. Okay. <laughs> I wouldn't mind, to be honest. <laughs> the river is up and there's a number of roads that have now been closed in that area. Can you run us through that, please? Yeah, so just north of town, Amungalan Road, the bridge there is crossed just to a few um, local blocks just out of town. Out on Gorge Road, um, Moor Creek Crossing is also closed. There's no access, that means, to the Nipmaluk Gorge or the centre there. And here in Catherine, well, the river's at 14 metres uh, high at the moment and rising. Still, That's still below the minor flood level of 16 metres, but the Bureau says that it may reach that level tonight or tomorrow with minor flooding possible here in town. Further to the south of Catherine, Matt, at, on the central Arnhem Road, um, that is closed just before Beswick, uh, the remote community there of Beswick, and it's reported that there's 0.6 of a metre over the road there um, this morning. The good news with rain is that it's wonderful for the NT's cattle producers. Have you had a chance to speak to a few pastoralists? What are they yeah, saying? Yeah, it's certainly been welcome news for pastoralists in the region, and especially for some south of Catherine, especially in the Sturt Plateau, where they've really missed out on a lot of the good falls over the wet season so far. Earlier this morning, I checked in with Gary Riggs at Lakefield Station. He had uh, 35 mil in the gauge overnight, poured out that much out, and even more the day before. Yeah, we had 100 mil yesterday, uh, which was quite a surprise. I thought we had about 20 mil through the night and come out and check the rain in the morning and the damn thing was half full. <laughs> so, yeah, 100 mil yesterday. So that came as a surprise just by how that rain fell? That's right, yeah. It just drizzled all night. Really didn't know it was raining. And uh, 
Yeah, it was yeah, quite a surprise and a big shock, actually. Had that much. How about across the property? Have you got a sense of how much rain has fallen? Yeah, well, it was fairly wet yesterday around the place, and uh, we got to a couple of rain gauge sites not not far from the property, and uh, there was one at 150 and another one at 145. So, yeah, that was in that nightfall as well. And, uh, yeah, talking to one of the girls, and they said that one one lake's nearly full. Uh, so that's good. It's Which is starting to look very, very grim there earlier on, kind of like the last few years, you know, February, where it's normally shutting off at the end of February. And, and we had all our lakes and dams. The lakes were all empty, uh, and there's... There's wetlands, I mean, swamps and that. There's about uh, six or seven of them on the property and none of them had any water in them. And uh, all our dams were less than, well, three quarters full, basically. And, uh, yeah, I was starting to think it was going to be fairly ordinary. Yeah, I spoke to you a few weeks ago and you said it would be the, the poorest wet season on record if, if you didn't get some more in the gauge. But this must have been a relief then, having some rainfall. Yes, yeah, yeah. Now I was just thinking that all the about all the new bores we put in over the last four four years, uh, we've put seven new bores in, and uh, I was just thinking, looks like we're going to be using all seven of them again this year. Uh, oh yeah, we'd use most of them anyway, but there was a couple of couple of extra ones to put in because we hadn't been getting rain and uh, areas were drying up fast on, on us all the time and uh, so we put them extra bores in and yeah up until that period of time I was thinking that yeah, this rain's not coming and uh, we're, we're less than what we were in 21-22 season and then we hadn't having the same thing again 22 and 23 but uh but no, it proved me wrong. But one thing I can say that the rain we did get, uh, it sort of it started sort of way back in September, and there was just little bits and bits all the time to make it a very good grass growing wet season, and uh, and we have plenty of grass and very fat cattle, and they haven't had any wet conditions on them. And but the last few days has been pretty wet. Yes. What does this recent rainfall mean for you then? Well, yeah, it, it, it means that, yeah, we can't send any cattle for a little while. So that doesn't uh, doesn't worry me that much. We will get them all out probably in the end of March, I suppose, our steers. But, but what it means is that there's no more pressure on having to get water out to them cattle after April, you know. And uh, makes the, easier, the year a bit easier. And how is it looking there at the station? Have you had any damage? No, no, no damage. Uh, it's been just, yeah, just drizzly wet. Uh, and that which is good, it's gone into the into the water into the water table, you know. And uh, a lot of our swamps do fill up through the sand ridges. Uh, sand country it's really it it comes down into the sand and hits that hard ground and travels back into the the swamps and that and uh, and then it keeps going down into the water table so it's all it's all good yes he's sounding happy 
Gary Riggs there at Lakefield Station in the Sturt Plateau region, enjoying the rain, and a lot of his neighbours are as well. Matheson Cattle Station reporting 93 millimetres in the gauge for the 24-hour period, 113 millimetres at Kadadi Station. Tarly, 103 millimetres. From memory, that's on top of 114 the day prior. Middle Creek, 125. Timber Creek, 114. 60 millimetres at Kidman Springs Station. And Dixie Station has enjoyed 102 millimetres just in the last 24 hours. Hello, my name's Tom Burrow. I'm a ranger over on Groot Island, and you're listening to The Country Hour. Keeping you up to date with all things rural. Now, if you are in the cattle industry, some breaking news coming out today from Brazil. The government over there has announced that it will suspend beef exports to China Following a case of mad cow disease, I'm joined in the share by Dan Fitzgerald, who has the, the statement in his hand from the Brazilian Ag Minister. What can you tell us? Yeah, Matt, so this was issued just a few hours ago. The Minister there of Agriculture, Carlos Favaro, he said that this case centred around a nine-year-old male animal from a small property in the northern state of Para. He said that the World Health Organization has been notified that uh, some of the samples have been sent to Canada, which will confirm whether or not this case is atypical. And that's important because atypical is regarded as being of lower risk. It's regarded as being naturally occurring, can pop up often in older cattle and uh, different to the classical case of this disease, which is what a country like Brazil would definitely not want because it's the classical case uh, which can be, you know, use the word outbreak and can spread from animal to animal. So if it's atypical, that is important. Yeah, and the Ag Minister said they're looking closely at that. Uh, the statement from him says, all measures are being adopted immediately at each stage of the investigation and the matter is being treated with total transparency to guarantee Brazilian and global consumers about the quality of our meat. Um, and yes, in some big ramifications for global trade, he said that beef exports to China would be temporarily suspended from this Thursday, bro. so today, um, and that dialogue with the authorities being in, intensified uh, so that all the information um, can prompt the re-establishment of Brazilian trade. So, yeah, temporary suspension of exports of beef from Brazil to China. So we're talking about the world's largest beef exporter suspending its trade to the world's largest importer of beef. This happened back in 2021. From memory, that suspension lasted around three months, so very significant. The length of the suspension, that, that is what will dictate what happens next. What could all of this mean for Australia's cattle industry? Our country, our presenter in New South Wales, Michael Condon, has just spoken to analyst Matt Dalgleish, who feels this will have some positive ramifications for Australia. Yes, it can. And see, what it does is it just reminds those overseas buyers that are sensitive to issues of safety around meat uh, that that the Australian product has a much better reputation and much better, I guess, traceability system, a much better standard of governance within the, the industry here uh, from the producer all the way through the supply chain. So uh, if, you, if you're looking at it from that perspective and saying, oh, well, here's another potential risk factor coming out of Brazil, 
um, it might mean that, say, the Chinese, uh, you know, authorities there might say, look, maybe we need to reassess our our approach towards Australia, and and maybe start to progress that that thawing of relationships that we're seeing already occurring. That might that might push that along a bit further, Michael, and uh, and we get some access back to some of the abattoirs that have been um, that have been shut out in the cold the last few years. Uh, is there signs that uh, trade is already relaxing? Are we seeing more uh, beef more easily going to China? Yes, if certainly this year we've seen. So the the time spent going through customs for Australian beef product has has reduced back down to more normal levels. Usually it takes around a, a week or so, two weeks, maybe tops to get it through customs. Um, back last year, and, and when we start, we were having the you know, in the, in the thick of the trade uh, tensions. We were seeing some product held up, you know, a month or two months uh, going through customs. So it appears as though there has already been uh, a little bit of an easing of that delay for Australian product getting through customs. Um, and so that's, that's a signal that there's already uh, you know, a thawing underway. We've we've seen Penny Wong over over you know discussing with uh, Chinese diplomats as well. So um, you know, I think that's also a good sign that we're actually talking. Whereas you know previously they weren't even taking calls from Australian politicians or Australian diplomats. Um, so yeah, I think I think it's all signalling that we could start to see uh, an improvement to to both you know trade tensions and and also trade flows into China. There's Mount Dalgleish from episode3.net. The big news this afternoon is that the Brazilian government has announced that it will suspend beef exports into China following this case of mad cow disease, also known as BSE. As updates come to hand on this story, we will share it with you here on the Country Hour. I've got here that last year China imported a record 2.6 million tonnes of beef. The majority of it came from Brazil. Its main supplier has just halted the trade. Could this be a win for Australia? Could it mean some of those abattoirs that have been banned from sending product to China Will this open the door for them? I guess we'll just have to wait and see. It is 16 to 1. Up next, we'll be taking a look at another cattle disease that's actually in Australia, but there's a vaccine on its way. Right across the territory on the ABC, you are tuned into the Country Hour. A reminder, if you need to duck out into the paddock for whatever reason, or maybe you're about to lose reception on the Stewart Highway, you can always download our podcast and listen at a time that suits you. Well, a venereal disease that causes infertility in cattle and costs the industry hundreds of millions of dollars, it could soon be a thing of the past, fingers crossed. Researchers from the University of Queensland say they're in the final stages of testing a new experimental vaccine. Megan Hughes takes a look. Livestock disease has been front and centre recently, with foot and mouth disease, lumpy skin disease and Japanese encephalitis all making headlines. But work is underway to prevent a serious but lesser known disease. Professor Ala Tabor from the Queensland Alliance for Agriculture and Food Innovation at UQ says this venereal disease is quite prevalent. It's been shown that one in 10 bulls that present at the abattoirs across northern Australia are infected with trichomonas fetus, which causes bovine trichomonas. So we previously hadn't had an Australian vaccine uh, for this particular disease. Bulls pass this disease onto cows during mating and it can cause infertility and early abortion. 
Professor Tabor is working on developing this new vaccine. She explains what the team's done. We first obtained some positive samples from a bunch of bulls that were being culled. And from that, we made a culture collection. So we had to clean them up because obviously growing samples from the bull's penis, it's not a pure environment. So we have to purify and make the pure culture of Trichomonas fetus that we could use in the vaccine because the vaccine has to be clean, right? And we inactivated it by heating, which is um, fairly a mild way of inactivating. You can use chemicals and things like that, but we just used heating. Yep, and to make sure we make sure they were not alive anymore before we formulated them in the vaccine. The industry is welcoming news of a vaccine for this disease. It's mostly prevalent in northern Australia, in WA, the NT, and in the Gulf Country in Queensland. But it has been found in southern regions, as cattle are being bought and transported down for breeding. Agfor Southern Inland Regional Director Bim Struss says this work could be a game changer. What it will do, particularly in uh, that northern region, it will be increased productivity. Provided it's, it's cost effective, productivity is the basis of what we're trying to do, Megan. If, if our industry doesn't produce the numbers of cattle that we need to produce, we lose, uh, we lose dollars. So it is very, very important. He says at the moment there's little options for the producers whose cattle test positive. Now, the only management practices uh, is to test bulls, who are the main carriers, and cull anything that's positive. And it's very, very important. The other way they do a bit of management on this, and it's more difficult, as you can imagine, in the Northern Territory or in Northern Australia. So where possible, they give cows sexual rest or better commonly termed as seasonally mates. So take the bulls out. And most cows, I'm told by my vets, will will clear the disease themselves. It's an internal thing that they'll actually, they can clear it if they're getting some sexual rest. But bulls, uh, young bulls likewise, if you uh, if you can keep them out of the cows for a period of time, they too will clear the disease. But older bulls, are less likely and uh, and are they'll, they'll be carriers for life and they needed to be tested and certainly culled. The early trials of this vaccine have been successful on a small test group of bulls at UQ's research farm. Further testing is being done before the vaccine can be officially registered and sold commercially. Megan Hughes with that report and you can read more about this vaccine up online right now if you go searching for ABC Rural. Yo, country. Hello, my name is Otto Campion. Pulmania, they call me from Bushnam. I'm a Arifia swamp ranger. I'm working um, with many countrymen. And you're listening to the Country Hour. And on Tuesday, uh, we broadcast live from the Savannah Fire Forum. If you missed that show, it is available via our podcast. A big event it was. It attracted 350 delegates from across northern Australia and also from around the world with 10 nations represented, including Belize, Morocco, Angola, Portugal, Botswana. The list goes on. They were all here in Darwin. The international guests are members of what is called the International Savannah Fire Management Initiative. And on Tuesday, we heard from its director, Sam Johnston. Here's a reminder of that. This is uh, an initiative set up to spread the word about what's going on here in Northern Australia. 
with regards to traditional fire management. So th this is not well known overseas and so these people are in charge of the fire departments that they're back in their countries or involved with working with Indigenous people back and so they're not so aware of what's going on here and this gives them uh, the opportunity about where they could be in 10 years time and uh, or 20 years time and so yep. it's a learning experience for them. Sam Johnston from the International Savannah Fire Management Initiative. Now, I met one of the delegates from Botswana. He calls himself OT. Here's his story about fire and what he's learned this week while in Darwin for this fire forum. Hello, yeah. My name is Utusitze Lekoko. Uh, a bit of a difficult name, but uh, my friends uh, call me OT, and pretty much that's how I go by. And tell us what you do in Botswana. Right. In Botswana, I am a lecturer at University of Botswana and basically in the Department of Environmental Science. Fire has been one of my interest areas and then with uh, GIS and remote sensing, um, we found out that we can actually use uh, technology to be able to tell where fires are around the country and aid fire managers in uh, controlling fires and managing fires. So um, the country is heavily uh, dependent on beef production and tourism and those are the areas that are affected by fire. So you know we do that kind of support, uh, giving them maps, showing them where fires are and how the environment and the range has been impacted by fires. And so tell us about your decision making to come all of the way to Australia, all of the way to Darwin for this week's Fire Forum. Right. Um, my story with fire uh, goes back a few years. Basically, um, as, as, as that support I was talking about to uh, fire rangers, um, I started getting interest in you know putting out fires every time they went. Uh, into the field to put out fires, I would go along with them, uh, but sometimes basically showing them the maps to navigate the, the, the territory. Um, and then I started getting excited about putting out fires, but then I also learned that, you know, it's not only about putting out fires, it's also about managing the fires. And um, since I am a, um, a lecturer at the University of Botswana, I then got an opportunity to do my further studies. Where I also learned there is this integrated fire uh, management uh, in initiative in Australia. And I thought, wow, this may also be an area that uh, would beef up my skills in terms of fire management in, in that uh, uh, context of integrated fire management. And I guess through that initiative, that's how you've found yourself in Darwin this week for the Savannah Fire Forum. What's it been like for you, OT? What have you learned? Oh, there's a lot of stuff that I picked up um, because here during the uh, fire forum we got introduced to how the community, communities themselves are, 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 are responsible of basically managing their own areas, their rangelands um, through use of fire. And it's, it's, it's been interesting to see the, the local communities actually participate in their own localities and knowing exactly what to do. Along with the experts, there's the expertise here in Australia and there's the use of local communities and there's so much wealth of information. Uh, for us, we do work with the communities, but we, we, we still involve them in putting out fires. We haven't gone to the stage where Australia is, 
in, in terms of um, having the communities take responsibility of their areas with fire management. And it sounds like you're still very focused on putting out a fire and not so much on using fire to stop those late season wildfires that can destroy a lot of country. Is that is that right? That is correct. Um, we have slowly been moving into using fire as a management tool um, where we now preempt the late season fires and then we basically do prescribed burning uh, to ensure that then when the fires come they are not as devastating as if we hadn't done any prescribed banning. So currently the government has actually um, provided a lot of resources, uh, including partnerships with other governments uh, to ensure we start uh, a, a, a bit more with fire management uh, initiatives. And we have had uh, programs that they are now training communities. So it's actually you know, slowly getting there. But now it is the time, the right time to also know what other countries are doing especially countries like Australia where the programs are already so robust to basically just get whatever they are doing here and just replicate it back home. And these programs in Northern Australia also generate revenue through carbon credits. How possible is that in Botswana? That's exactly what we are looking at at the moment because we are not there yet and we are hoping with the lessons learned here we can then impress upon our government to say hey look Local communities are themselves actually managing their areas and during that time they are also able to generate units that they can then sell and generate income for their own developments, which is something our government is actually passionate about in terms of um, community-based, uh, resource-based. So now uh, what has been happening is they've been using wildlife quotas in the areas where communities reside uh, for hunting and then that is used to generate income for the communities. So we haven't actually uh, gone into fire management to do what we are currently doing with wildlife uh, resources. And just finally, OT, how's the wet season going in Botswana? It's currently raining right now. Um, there's a, a lot of rain, but we have a very short rainy season. Uh, the northern part of the country can have like about 650 millimeters of rainfall uh, per annum, uh, whereas the southern part of the country we get about 450 and uh, the southwest we can go as low as like 250 millimeters of rainfall per annum. So currently it is the time that we are getting that rainfall, even though it's not a lot, but it is a precious resource at this moment. Well, enjoy the rest of your time in the Northern Territory and thanks for your time on the Country Hour. Thank you so much, Matt. Yo, what's going on, everybody? My name is Gilambanu, aka Bolabaro. Narayako, Rilipir Banu. Yo. Yo, my name is Davis Wirpanda and I'm from Baniala. I work at Golkola. My Yulmu name is Wadon. I'm a Yulmu man. And you're listening to Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. In this second half of the Country Hour, you will learn about plans to build a green mine. And the first electric ute has arrived in Australia. It's actually doing a regional tour to show farmers what it can do. So this afternoon on the Country Hour, we'll go for a test drive. 
So this is the first commercially available uh, electric ute in Australia. Um, you know, it wasn't all that long ago that people were saying that electric utes didn't exist anywhere in the world. Well, here it is right now. I'm touching it as we speak. Looks pretty real to me. That's it. It's no unicorn. It's right here. Yeah, that's all coming up before 1.30. But first, let's go to the Weather Bureau. There is a lot going on. Sally Cutter is there this afternoon. Uh, the top end is getting a drenching, Sally. What do we need to know this afternoon? Oh, I think a drenching might be a bit of an understatement. We're getting widespread rainfall down at Timber Creek. They've had another they had 142 millimetres in the 24 hours to 9 o'clock. And that's so it's not like the when the cyclone came through that was flash flooding. This is big large rainfalls across the catchment which is of course the flooding issues down through there Wandy Creek's at 124 millimetres on the daily Bradshaw again down in that catchment at 120 millimetres the, so there's been some pretty good falls so even but even over into the Roper catchment we've had 84 and a half millimetres at the LC Homestead and Edith Falls Ridge 83 millimetres so what, what that means is we've got a flood watch out for most of the top end and into the Gregory and also a flood warning for the Catherine River. And we might, we'll see got minor at the Nipmuluk Centre, but we might also see some mine. There's a chance there's, that we might see some minor flooding in Catherine overnight tonight. We're also looking at potentially, in the process of putting out a, a flood warning for the for Beswick area so the so probably the thing to do is today is just keep an eye and an ear or whatever out for the warning keep it keep it basically keep an eye on our list of warnings because we are monitoring all the rivers through the area that we do provide warnings for yeah just that, going off not, the not Catherine fun. River cam this afternoon it's sitting at around 14 meters there at the bridge in town what's the bureau mm. expecting for that Catherine River catchment over the next few days? Uh, more rain, basically. The, so there's going to be continued rainfall tomorrow right across the, the top end and into the Gregory, probably the main features. We've got the monsoon trough redeveloping over the top end and that's what's helping all this rainfall. It's, and continuing to Saturday, Mon, by the time we get to Monday, things are easing off, but we're also expecting a low to form within this trough but where it's going to form is a little bit uncertain at the moment and that's going to have, where it forms, will have a bit of an impact on where we see the rainfall. There are some models suggesting a tropical cyclone in northern Australia over the next few days. Oh, it depends on how far offshore. If it forms in the Gulf, it'll go east and go off and bother the Coral Sea. The, it's probably as far as the top end's concerned, the... If you get the low forming in the Joseph Bonaparte Gulf, it's going to come on shore fairly quickly. But we are, it will mean that we have this tropical low over land, which is helping just to get those storms going or the heavier falls going. So that's, at the moment, we're not looking at any tropical cyclones developing. The, the environment isn't really quite favourable, okay. partly because we've got this thing called Australia in the way. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> um, uh, just quickly, Central Australia, is there much to report over the next few days? Not, not too much. We will see showers and storms increasing on Saturday, so starting on Friday, but to Saturday there could be a little bit of rain down in the Leicester. Could see sort of 5 to 15 millimetres down through there, on, but clearing off as we go into Sunday and then Monday, 
the southern parts are gone back to being relatively dry, which does mean the fire dangers will increase again as we go into next week. Okay. Anything else we need to be aware of this afternoon? No, just be keep, keep an ear out for those warnings because we, we've got the Catherine one out. To, as I said, the Wardhouse for Rambeswick is in the process of producing. And just, just keep an, an eye out or ear out for any others that, rivers that we do deem necessary to put a warning out for. Yeah. Okay then, Sally, thank you for your time this afternoon. Really appreciate it. That's okay. That is Sally Cutter there at the Weather Bureau, wet, wet in the top end. And when we look at this flood watch for parts of the northwest Bonaparte and Carpentaria, the list of catchments likely to be affected is a significant list. It includes the Victoria River, the Fitzmorris, the Finnis, the Lower Daly River, the Daly River above Douglas River, the Catherine, the Moyle, the Waterhouse and the Roper River. Uh, just repeating some information we shared with you at the top of the show, a few road closures around the Catherine District as we go to air this afternoon. The Amungalan Road Bridge is closed. Out on Gorge Road, the Maud Creek Crossing is closed, so no access out to the Gorge or Nipmuluk Centre. Southeast of Catherine, the central Arnhem Road is now closed at the Waterhouse River Crossing just before the community of Beswick. Stay up to date with road closures via the Roads NT website. It is 11 past one and you are tuned into the Country Hour. Well, can a mine in the Northern Territory have net zero emissions. A company that's hoping to start a rare earths mine to the north of Alice Springs has unveiled its plan to make this happen. A green mine. Arafura Resources Managing Director Gavin Lockyer spoke to Victoria Ellis about this project. It's obviously a global responsibility for, for everybody to be looking to reduce their um, greenhouse gas emissions and, and we're no different. Um, we've made the um, decision to also target a net zero by 2050, just uh, more aligned with um, general policy globally. And so we felt it was important as a, you know, a corporate citizen to really try and map out our, our pathway uh, to that, that uh, net zero and actually give some insight to it rather than you know, it just being some words. We've we've spent a, a fair bit of time and and research and, and money in in mapping out that that plan uh, to reduce our um, you know our, our requirements for greenhouse gases um, and uh, you know that was the the latest announcement that we put out where we're slowly moving to renewables uh, over a period of time uh, to make sure that we achieve that goal and it's something too that not just we want to do but it's something that our customers are expecting us to do as well as well as our uh, shareholders and what actual renewables will you be using? So um, we'll be uh, moving from, uh, so the, the project itself sits alongside the Amadeus gas pipeline. So it makes sense for us to start um, the project utilising gas and and um, back up with diesel. So over a period of time, and we've got studies underway as we speak uh, for solar and wind. Uh, so we will utilise solar and wind energy uh, with uh, associated battery battery storage. Uh, and we hope to target around 50% of our project power by 2030 from that um, that technology. And then um, 
as we as we progress and as we get more um, uh, more efficient in our processing, we'll be looking to um, convert the remainder of our pro uh, power requirements to uh, a concentrated solar thermal generation, which is um, basically heating up salt, um, which um, uh, maintains heat, and then you can generate steam from that heat. How realistic do you think your timeline is for all those different stages of renewables, considering the geographic remoteness of the mine? Look, um, we like to say that the, the mine site is remote but not isolated. You know, we are only 130 kilometres north of Alice Springs. Uh, we have very good infrastructure around us. So, you know, these technologies that we're looking at, um, the, particularly the solar and the wind, are obviously well-established and well-known technologies. So... I think implementation of that will be um, relatively straightforward. We are planning to run a demonstration scale um, concentrated solar thermal system um, and we'll be doing that before 2030 uh, with the view to sort of implement that sometime later. And where is everything else up to with the mine? Is there any other updates there? Yeah, look, it's a really exciting time for our Afura, to be perfectly honest. Um, this year is looming to be the biggest one in our our, uh, our history to date, we raised $140 million towards the end of last year. Now, what that has enabled us to do is to start ordering equipment. So we've started ordering some of our long lead, big, big pieces of equipment uh, with the manufacturers uh, as we speak. We're also in the process of awarding um, construction works um, or for early earthworks uh, in the region. So we would like to start building access roads um, our fly camp, uh, ball field preparation, and we would like to be doing that in the next couple of months. So there'll be a bit of activity happening uh, through town and, and uh, out at site over, over the coming months. The plan is that we uh, get all our financing in place by the middle of this year uh, and we commence um, you know, full-blown construction by Q3 of 2023. So really exciting times for the project. So about September, you could sort of say that there'd be full-blown construction starting? Uh, probably September, October, somewhere around there. Yeah, definitely. And you also mentioned before that you're going to be having a new office in Alice Springs. Can you tell me a bit about that? Absolutely. Um, we've always had a, um, a plan to open a, uh, an office in Alice Springs and um, we're in the process of, uh, of recruiting and we think we've got somebody, uh, somebody that signed on the dotted line, but uh, I'm not uh, it's not all the paperwork hasn't quite uh, been settled yet, but we think we've got a local person that uh, will be, um, uh, you know, representing Arafura in town, and uh, we'll be certainly opening up that office uh, in the in the coming months. How challenging has everything that's happening in Alice at the moment been for getting that started? Um, well, well, it's disappointing, and obviously it's challenging because of. Um, you know, a lot of businesses are closing and, and um, you know, it's, it's difficult to attract personnel to the region. Um, but, you know, these things have been uh, going on for, for a very long period of time. And I think recruiting locally, if we can, is, is going to be the key to our success here. This is Gavin Lockyer from Arafura Resources. As we go to air this afternoon, shares in Arafura are up by 1.4%. Year to date, however, shares in the company have risen 52%. It is 17 past one. The first electric ute has arrived in Australia. Up next on the Country Hour, we're going to go and take a test drive.
Well, the first fully electric ute has arrived in Australia and is on a regional tour to show farmers what it can do. But with a range of just 330 kilometres and a one-tonne towing capacity, is this LDV ute fit for purpose? To learn more about it, Warwick Long went for a drive. It's big metallic blue, and the best way to describe it is it kind of looks like a Hilux. This is a very different kind of ute, though. The first EV ute in Australia that people can buy. It has around a six-figure price tag and it's about to go on a regional tour to show people what utes like this can do. With it, with the keys in his hand, is Ben Lever. He's a regional clean transport organiser at Solar Citizens, which describes itself as a community organisation campaigning for more clean energy and clean transport. So can this ute, or other EV utes, stand the test of Australian agriculture? Let's go and find out. So this is the first commercially available uh, electric ute in Australia. Um, you know, it wasn't all that long ago that people were saying that electric utes didn't exist anywhere in the world. Well, here it is right now. I'm touching it as we speak. Looks pretty real to me. That's it. It's no unicorn. It's right here. Ben, tell me a little bit about this car. It's got a huge battery on it, um, about 88 kilowatts. And, you know, it it's basically can do the things that a ute can do, but cleaner. Should I be scared? Definitely not. <laughs> Should we go for a drive? Let's do it. All right, we're in the car at the moment. Ben's got it. Ben, before we start the car, it's a bit like the normal ute on the inside, probably a little bit more modern looking with a bit of a a computer type display, but that's about it. Yeah, that's it. It's very much going to be like any other ute that you're used to, except it's going to be much cleaner for the environment and much better for your hip pocket uh, not having to fill up with your petrol all the time. And I notice you've, you've got a key. No, that's it. Um, it's you know, basic turnkey situation. Um, no, no, nothing fancy. Um, just getting the job done. All right, I better put my seatbelt on, and then we should go. It's pretty smooth as we just drive off. You just turn off and go. The first thing I notice, Ben, is it's pretty quiet. Yeah, it's very quiet. It actually emits a little bit of a musical note um, just to, so that you can hear it coming for safety reasons. Otherwise, it'd be totally silent. And in terms of the power in it as well, how fast is it? Oh, there we go. I can feel that. Yeah, got a little bit of um, acceleration to it. Um, go quite, quite a bit of torque. Um, the beautiful thing about an electric motor is that all of the torque is available to you as soon as you put your foot down. It's not just a particular part of the rev range, like with a combustion engine. So really does pick up and go whenever you want it to. So it almost goes faster immediately than a normal car. That's right. It just accelerates straight off the line with no hassles whatsoever. I could feel that. My, you basically put my bum back in the seat when you put the foot down then. That's it. it will, if you put the foot down, it will go like the clappers. How much battery life does this car have? So this has 88 kilowatt hours, um, which for this car is, is about uh, 330 kilometres is the estimated range. Emily Crawford's with us in the back of the car with us. So I'm going to turn around and try and stretch my arm out towards you, Emma. Emily, you're off a, a dairy farm close to here. Is it exciting to be in a car like this or think about technology like this for your farm? Uh, yes, Warwick, it is. I think dairy farmers and farmers would be really interested to know that there might be a possibility of getting electric vehicles that will actually 
do what they need them to do and have large towing capacities and then you know we could actually have the options of reducing carbon emissions and saving money on diesel. Yes. <laughs> Why do you think it's important for farmers to be looking at things like electric vehicles and, and moving away from fossil fuels? Uh, well, I think all farmers feel pretty strongly that we want to try to reduce carbon emissions. Uh, you know, we've all experienced floods and hailstorms and lots of adverse weather here in the last few months. And so I think everyone wants to try and improve that situation. And the transport industry is one of the major emitters in Australia. And I think Australian farmers would like to be a part of that journey. Ben Levers with us as we're cruising through uh, downtown Shepparton now. We're almost making our way in, into town. Ben, a couple of things I wanted to touch off. One, one towing. Can you tow with a ute like this? Absolutely you can. Um, there's a tow ball that's uh, one of the options for this vehicle um, from the factory and it's got a 1,000 kilo uh, capacity to tow. Does that affect your battery life greatly? Yeah, so obviously the more the more weight you're carrying, uh, the more work the engine has to do. So it does reduce the the range a bit, um, but it's, it is definitely capable of it. Do you know by how much? Like, does it halve your your battery life, or a third, or, or three quarters? What? Yeah, not not too sure exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's probably something to to work out as well. Emily was talking then about the options. This is the first commercially available uh, Ute electric Ute in Australia. There are others overseas. What's holding back other car manufacturers from introducing Utes like this to Australia? So in a lot of our peer nations, um, the other sort of advanced economies, they have fuel efficiency standards that require the car companies to bring in a range of vehicles, some of which are, are much more cleaner and efficient, and that includes a, a good mix of electric vehicles as well. Because Australia doesn't really have these standards, we're at the bottom of the queue, and the car manufacturers are prioritising those other nations for their electric vehicles. Because they've only got a limited supply, they put them where they have to put them because of the, the rules. So because we are at the back of the queue, we don't get the variety of models, and we also get a very limited run, which usually sells out in you know a matter of minutes in some cases. What are the, the major criticisms for a car like this at the moment? Um, so a lot of people are really concerned about the range, um, and that's one of the reasons that we are so keen to see these other models that do have a, a larger battery and longer range uh, coming into the country, as well as seeing the, the charging network continue to roll out. Um, the other big one is the upfront cost, um, and that's one of the reasons that we're keen to see you know more affordable models that are available in Europe um, be brought into the country and to see a little bit more competition to help drive down those prices. What does a car like this cost? So this one is nearly $100,000, but if we look in New Zealand, it's about $20,000 cheaper because they have those uh, standards that are driving the prices down. So it's a really clear example of, of how the right policies can make a big difference to uh, individual uh, buyers. So this same car is almost $20,000 cheaper in New Zealand? That's right. This being the first in Australia, is this, for want of a better term, can electric utes only get better from here? Is this literally the, the base of what we will see and we will see improvements from here? That's it. This is really the, the jumping off point, the, the leading edge of, of the utes. Um, they're only going to get bigger, better, uh, more range, uh, more mod cons. It's only going to go up from here. <laughs> no one will probably hear it because the car's so quiet, but we'll turn it off and jump out after a drive like that. Thanks, thanks for taking us for a cruise. All right, thanks for coming along. So Emily, you're a dairy farmer in Chatura. We've been for the drive now. What do you make of it? 
Oh, I think it's really exciting. It's a great vehicle and just seems like a normal ute to me. Uh, and I think it's just really exciting if we're starting to see them coming into the country. Um, as a farmer, I'd like to get an electric vehicle and I'd like them, you know, machinery and vehicles to be electric so we can start reducing our carbon emissions on farm and saving on our diesel bills. How long do you think it'll take before you see a ute like this one on your farm? I don't know. This might be a ute that we'd buy, but um, you know we need something that's probably equivalent to a Land Cruiser or an F-150, something that we're going to tow, something that's versatile. Uh, and I think you know all farmers need to make their own choices and we want to be able to choose. We don't just want to have the one ute. That is Emily Crawford, a dairy farmer and member of Farmers for Climate Action, speaking there to Warwick Long and road testing this first fully electric ute which has arrived in Australia. Just before I let you go, a reminder, there is a minor flood warning in place for the Catherine River and a flood watch in place for parts of the northwest Bonaparte and Carpentaria. There's a number of roads closed around the Catherine region and there's more rain on the way. So make sure you stay up to date with the Roads NT website. Stay up to date via the Bureau's website and information. You've got to love the Catherine River Cam. And of course, keep listening to the ABC, your emergency broadcaster. Keep it rural.